Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Welcome to White Collar Briefly. My name is Lee Richards, and with me for this discussion with Eric Grossman, the Chief Legal Officer of Morgan Stanley, is David Massey. Eric, it's a great pleasure to have this opportunity to chat with you about the perspective you have as the head of the legal department here at Morgan Stanley, and maybe more importantly, as an avid and experienced student of current events in law enforcement and generally. So uh, David and I have really been looking forward to this conversation. I think it's good to remind our listeners about the rich experience behind that perspective. You are a proud son of Hamilton College and a decorated graduate from the Fordham Law School, after which you clerked for Judge Richard Cardamone in the Second Circuit. You then joined Davis Polk and Wardwell, where you rose to become a partner, before moving over to Morgan Stanley, where, as I've already said, you're chief legal officer and a member of the management committee. Your charitable and extracurricular activities are widely known and far too many for me to recite in this brief conversation, but I can't fail to note the tireless work you've done as president of the Board of Advocates for Children here in New York, as vice chairman of the Serve America movement, and as a member of the Dean's Council and of the board of the Alumni Association at Fordham Law School. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, both of you. Uh, I've known you you both for a, for a long time, and it's a great privilege of mine to be here with you both. So thank you. Lee, your introduction was so kind. So I'm the chief legal officer. I run the legal and compliance division, not the law department, which is important because uh, in the division, we have not just all the lawyers, but also all the compliance professionals, as well as all the AML professionals uh, who cover a broad range of financial crimes. It's the Global Financial Crimes Group. We also have the, the reg relations and reg affairs functions. And we have Lee's phone ringing, notwithstanding our to turn it off. <laughs> I thought I'd turn it off. <laughs> anyway, a pleasure to be with you both. So. so I'll just jump right in. So Eric, a few years ago, you spoke on a panel at Fordham Law School about the credit crisis of 2008 through nine. And you said at that time that you thought another big financial crisis was less likely to happen now but that we were less ready for a big crisis if one did come. What did you mean by that? And is that still your view today? So it's interesting. So uh, yes-ish is my answer to that in terms of whether it's still my view today. What, what I meant was what Dodd-Frank and, and many of the other sort of post-crisis regulatory reforms did was there's sort of two major buckets, I think, as I thought about it at the time at the panel that I was sitting on. One bucket was what have they done to shore up the financial system the way and and principally around the two most significant contributing factors to the crisis capital and liquidity so post financial crisis the banks all of the major banks on the planet but the u.s banks in particular are far more capitalized and far more liquid and it's it's no surprise that the, the five leading banks on the planet are all American banks because of all the work that was done by the Federal Reserve after the crisis to make sure that we were safer and sounder. 
mostly in the form of capital and liquidity, but also just in terms of processes, the way we run ourselves, all those sorts of things. And so, you know, leverage, I mean, just on every metric, uh, the U.S. banks uh, are extraordinarily uh, safe and sound. In terms of the prediction I made, as it turned out, none of, when I made those, that prediction, I did not know about COVID and the great global pandemic. But there was sort of no greater test of the U.S. financial system presented by massive, quick unemployment, a total lockdown of the economy. This is before, you know, the, the government infusion that came later. And by and large, the financial system, whether the United States financial system, weathered that without any material consequence at all. The banks remained safe, profitable, sound, arguably more profitable. Morgan Stanley had its most profitable year last year during the crisis. Uh, we maintain extraordinary high levels of capital. We just announced last week significant returns of capital. We're doubling our dividend. We increased our buyback to $12 billion a year. Um, so the banks are safe and the financial system is safe. The What I meant, though, on the other hand, in terms of whether the government, what I really meant was the government's ability to deal with a crisis of the financial system, which we did not have in the pandemic, was significantly curtailed in Dodd-Frank, meaning the Fed during the crisis responded by shoring up individual entities. In particular, as you all remember, they negotiated the sale of Bear Stearns. They negotiated sort of the sale of Lehman Brothers. They uh, propped up AIG. They basically saved AIG. Their ability to do individualized programs targeted on, on, on particular entities was eliminated by Dodd-Frank. So to the extent that the next financial crisis could be stemmed by the Fed coming in and basically taking over one particular financial institution or bank, or they can no longer do that under Dodd-Frank. Plus, their ability to provide liquidity to particular institutions was again, curtailed significantly. So at the time, and I still feel this way, if you really had a financial crisis as opposed to an economic crisis, so a crisis of the financial industry, the Fed would, does not have as many tools in its arsenal. So, and, there, and, and one thing that the pandemic exposed was some holes still in their arsenal, and, they, and, they, and that's why it took a couple of days like to shore up the mutual fund market and things like that during the pandemic crisis. And those are things that I think the Fed will be studying going forward to try and continue to see if it can, you know, learn from, you know, again, the tools that it didn't have at its disposal. But no question, U.S. financial system and, and the U.S. financial sector extraordinarily strong as a result of the crisis. But ironically, Dodd-Frank makes the ability to rescue the financial system even harder. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, I think that's that that is a fair statement. However, on balance... I would say that the benefits of Dodd-Frank and the benefits of the Fed's supervisory regime, albeit sometimes not necessarily transparent or fair, has been to create what, without question, we have, you know, some extraordinary banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, I mean, Wells Fargo, I mean, these are, notwithstanding, you know, the idiosyncratic problems that we've all had, they're the, the globe's leading financial institutions, and I'm not going to call out others, but you need not look far outside our borders at how other banks are still struggling with capital and liquidity and things that we put to bed a long time ago. And the political environment, I guess, is a lot different now than it was in 2010 also, right? So to the extent you needed, you were to need legislation 
to do anything in a crisis, that's pretty worrisome now yeah. as compared to 2009-10. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think that we, we the, the ship has kind of passed on any sort of major legislative change. Frankly, the ship has passed on, on legislation to solve any problem yeah. that the country has other than spending more money, but that's a topic for a different podcast. <laughs> All right. So turning to the SEC and one of its major initiatives these days, You've seen, of course, and it's been important to Morgan Stanley for some time, the issue of environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, disclosures. Um, as recently as today or, or last week, the SEC is always coming out with new things about, about ESG. Yeah. What effect do you think that the SEC's new guidance on ESG and the new attention to ESG, which has really been very heightened in the past year, will have on public companies, underwriters, and fund managers? Look, it's a great question and one that frankly, could probably take up an entire podcast. And it's not just the I mean, the SEC, clearly, now with uh, uh, Chair Gensler in place, and, the, and the, frankly, the administration's overall you know, perspective and focus on ESG has elevated their uh, level of engagement on this issue. That's true at a number of other regulators as well. Uh, the Fed, uh, which has not had a regime change in the form of, you know, a new governors, nonetheless, has set up a task force focused on this issue. And the European and in particular the UK regulators have been at this a long time. The real question is they've been, when I say been, they've been at it. The real question is, well, what, and sort of your question is, well, what is the it that they're at and what are they driving towards? I put my, I put this analysis again sort of into two buckets. One is, what are they doing to sort of the business, what are they doing to put pressure on the business community writ large? And then what are they putting, what pressure are they putting on financial institutions in particular, given, you know, our role as intermediary for the distribution raising of capital? And given how, frankly, much more highly regulated we are than most other uh, corporates. The, and they're doing lots in all of those spaces. I think the principal thing that they can do right now, and I think it's log a logical first step, is require us to talk more about the risk in ways that are more understandable by rank and file you know, investors and humans and more granular so that they can be analyzed and compared across both banks and, and, and corporates, and uh, also more quantifiable. So, you know, tell us exactly how, you know, how many, how much property do you own in Florida that's on the coastline? You know, how much money do you lend to, are you exposed to this industry set or that industry set? And then the last thing they can do, uh, and hopefully they will do, is, is do that with some rules that will deliver, and this is a work in progress, some reasonable consistency across industry sets and the like to, 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 to go back to serve the goal I said of comparability across the different. I think that's, that's kind of what they're driving at right now. I don't think, and of course, then their ultimate goal is that hopefully will then change behavior, right? So more transparency, more sunshine, if transparency and sunshine delivers in a world in which investors are very focused on this, I mean, real money investors are very focused on having their money work, you know, in industries that they care about. And the public is focused on this in terms of judging whether companies are good or bad, whatever that means, based on, you know, do they get this issue or not? I think ultimately the, the, 
the action is what they hope will come after they require more disclosure. And so logically, they're focused on disclosure across, again, all corporates, but because of the role that the banks play in terms of intermediaries and because of the existing regulatory hook that they have in us, whether it's the, the Bank of England and, and the uh, PRA in London or the Fed and the SEC here, they can kind of get us to lead the charge. And, you know, the good news is, I think at almost every major financial institution, we kind of get it too. We see the risk of, of climate change and we see the value in disclosure. And I think provided that we get some rules that are sensible and reasonable and consistent, then I think we're all, you know, we're, we're happy to participate in that process. So given the fact that we're in this transition period, what are your views about uh, backing those efforts up with enforcement actions? Is it, is, is, that the right, is it the right time no. to do that? And, and if so, how should they do that? I think enforcement actions right now should be reserved for the cases in which people purport to sell securities and instruments uh, with a green, so-called green wrapper that upon examination turns out to be not all that it was advertised. So, you know, the SEC sticks to its traditional knitting of saying, look, you know, if you're going to sell a security or an instrument, uh, it has to be what, and it has to perform the way that you say it will, you know, provided that, you know, you've predicted, you know, what the likely outcome is. So if you say that, you know, this bond, uh, the proceeds of this bond are going to build parks, you know, all over, you know, wherever, and that turns out not to be true, that you raise the money, yeah, you're building some parks, but you're also, doing, then, you know, then I think those are cases to bring. And I think that there's, there's been a real rush to satisfy the investor demand that I described for so-called, you know, socially responsible investing. And in that rush, I'm quite confident that some people have, you know, oversold the greenish, the greenishness <laughs> yeah. uh, of their products. And I think that's where the SEC ought to start. And I suspect, and frankly, I know that's where they're already started. What about the uh, question of how underwriters should change their behavior? Does this change the due diligence obligations of underwriters, or is it pretty much status quo? No, look, I think uh, in two respects, I think underwriters' obligations are going to change. One is that to the extent that the SEC requires you know, disclosure of climate-related risks, then the underwriters are going to have to ensure that the work was robustly done, uh, and that they, you know, that they that they're comfortable that you know, the company is doing what it says that it's doing. So that that that's coming, and that will come, just like any other disclosure change that the SEC requires, and the underwriters, you know, follow along. Uh, the second thing is, I do think, uh, from an underwriter's perspective, there's in addition, this uh, sort of new reputational franchise risk occasioned by this, that's going to require folks understanding and being more sensitive to particular industry sets where, you know, performance could be adversely impacted by, you know, by regulatory outcomes. So you mentioned Gary Gensler a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, one of the things that he's started talking about is what he calls gamification. Your organization has just completed its acquisition of E-Trade, and I imagine you've now taken a somewhat keener interest in online uh, retail trading. Yeah. What are your thoughts about this phenomenon of gamification and the idea that, for example, investors would be rewarded by some sort of graphic, internet graphic, for their decision to invest in a particular, particular stock? Yeah. 
Uh, well, look, I, I, I tend to make it a practice not to comment on competitors, so I'll stick to that practice and only talk about what I know, which is E-Trade. Uh, E-Trade is a, a much more plain vanilla online broker. It's been around a long, long time. Its reputation is well-established. Its software, both for you know the, the online and, and remote applications, are world-class in terms of one's ability to to see their portfolio, trade their portfolio, trade options, model, get now Morgan Stanley research and other things that go along with that. There's no fireworks. There's no there's no balloons, no flashy colors. People make money. People lose money uh, the old-fashioned way. <laughs> so And so, look, and I, I think that's – and we saw, obviously, the, the, the FINRA action last week against uh, one of those competitors. I, I think the more interesting question for Gensler to wrestle with, which I – I say wrestle with because I don't know that he will find an answer is the phenomena that we saw earlier this year where equities and not not penny stocks, but real equities for companies that you know are real businesses when their share price seems to have broken from sort of what we view as traditional valuation, you know, Metrics. Now, right. Obviously, stocks move crazy. I mean, just look at Morgan Stanley stock. You know, we were 92 two weeks ago, and today I think we're 88. And you don't have to go back that long ago when we were, you know, half this price. So stocks move around a lot, but some of the the, the price movements and the volatility that we saw earlier in the year, and the reasons for that volatility, clearly reflected a a disconnection from traditional valuation methodologies around the underlying assets. That is a problem that may not have a solution, but I, I think it's easy for them to weed out the, the, the balloons and the fireworks and stuff like that, which they should, I think. I think it's going to be harder for them to tackle this question because, you know, I mean, it's where, you know, ultimately, you know, it's a free market. You know, I mean, it's a regulated market, but it's a free market. If someone wants to pay X for something, then, you know, they ought to be able to pay X, get it. Someone will sell it to them. Well, it's interesting that we're talking about paradigm shift in the attitudes of investors. On the one hand, they now care about things like ESG. On the other hand, they're motivated by balloons and fireworks. So we, yeah. it feels like we're going through a trans, yeah. trans, transition of yeah. some kind. I don't know. But only I'd say to be fair to the – I don't know that they were they were motivated by balloons and fireworks. I think – what has happened, and you see this with the proliferation, I think, of online gaming now too, is that there's and 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 it's and it's a logical outgrowth of the sort of mobile generation. I, I call them the mobile generation, you know, which is this, you know, kind of make money fast, kind of, you know, I'm going to bet on this game, I'm going to buy this stock. I mean, it's you know, I can do it from my phone. I can see, you know, I've made money right. You know, like right there, it's not like the old fellow. I'm gonna invest money and I'll come back to you know. I remember, remember when my uh, my my sons were born. We got uh, my wife and I. We got from some people. We got uh, bonds. You know, like the old fashioned bond where you get a bond and you have to hold on to the bond. Paper bond. Paper bond. I think I still have them somewhere. Like series double E paper bonds. You know, I mean, that's just that's not the mobile generation. You know, so it's a little different. Yeah, well, on the on the issue of gamification, one last question, and that is. Payment for order flow. Yeah. Do you have a view about whether that's been a, a good phenomenon for the markets, or is it causing some of the problems that Gensler is trying to wrestle with on gamification? Uh, look, I wouldn't. Uh, payment for order flow has had as a consequence the ability of online brokers 
to a zero out commissions, which I think is clearly a good thing in terms of providing opportunities for investors, liquidity into the markets. And I think that the payment for order flow question has sort of been asked for years by regulators before Chair Gensler and analyzed. But I think it is clearly the case that consumers have have received extraordinary execution, even in a payment for order flow world. And they paid zero commission versus the old days when you'd buy a you know, $5 stock and pay the broker 50 cents to do it. You know, you already had to make 50 cents on the, on the stock had to go up 10% in order to cover your, your nut. So, so I, I, look, I'm not going to predict, and we certainly will participate in, in an analysis of payment for order flow. It's immaterial to Morgan Stanley. I mean, the, the payment for order flow is immaterial to Morgan Stanley. It's, it's obviously much more material to some others, you know, who don't have as diversified a set of businesses as Morgan Stanley. But I think that the benefits to market participants are pretty extraordinary, and they'll have to think really hard about eliminating, because going back to a world where people pay commissions <clears throat> is not, I think, a place that where, where markets would be beneficially served. That ship has sailed. I think so. Hard to put the genie back in the All right, to turn to another hot topic, special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, have gotten a lot of attention lately, just like ESG within the past 12 months. As you know, SPACs are so-called blank check companies that are created for the primary or even sole purpose of merging with an operating company that is private to bring that company to the public markets. All the big banks, of course, are doing SPAC deals, including Morgan Stanley. Some have said that SPACs are a bubble. The SEC has recently noted that it is watching this area and is considering how to protect investors. What's your view on this space to the extent you feel comfortable talking about it on litigation, enforcement risk, and the whole area of SPACs generally? Yeah, look, you know, again, it's a question we could spend a lot of time talking about. The, the vehicle itself is not inherently evil. The proliferation of the vehicle itself, I wouldn't describe as a bubble. I might des- describe it as exuberance, I guess, you could say that exuberance has led to overinvesting in SPACs that will not be able to consummate themselves in a transaction that ultimately leads to you know, a new public company. So in that sense, it's a bubble. Those investors, though, don't actually lose their money. They get their money back. So it's different than like, you know, oh, you, you gave, you know, SPAC led by David Massey, you know, $500 million, and then he never did a deal and the $500 million goes away. You get it back. So, so it's a different kind of bubble. I, I think that the, the risks, the SPAC risk is that you have a lot of, a lot of money has been raised that wants a home and ideally a good home in the form of a company that is going to, you know, perform, you know, when run by whoever the SPAC, you know, leader is. The danger, you know, is that, you know, there, you know, there's okay. There's only so many good homes, and you know, in this neighborhood, and that you have some of these spacs end up, you know, buy, because they don't want to give the money back. They've kind of wasted their time for two years, and the economic reward for the spac, you know, founder originators, originator or originators is pretty, you know, outsized, as you know, in many cases, that they will buy a home that maybe is not the home that the investor in the first place thought they were going to get. Now, they have an opportunity not, you know, the way the SPACs work, that they can balk out at the time. But of course, you don't know a lot. You don't, you have much less time and there's much less regulatory scrutiny around the home that you're buying. 
that's part of the reason this vehicle, right? You have to kind of back, I don't want to say backdoor way, but it's a it's a different route for a private company to, to, to go public, right? Than the traditional route of IPOing, where you have this enormously complex and well-established disclosure regime. And so all that creates the risk of bad behavior and bad outcomes. And bad behavior and bad outcomes can be you know, met by the tools available by the Securities and Exchange Commission now to investigate and bring those who make misrepresentations to justice for doing so. That, that, I mean, so now you, one, one way to, 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 to get ahead of that, of course, would be to think about, okay, what, what are the disclosure regimes around that despacking transaction? Uh, to provide even greater clarity to the SPAC investor on whether or not they want to live in that new home or whether they want to, you know, they want to take their money back. Uh, and I suspect that you will see more disclosure requirements around that at that moment. But but doesn't this mean that there are too many private companies going public that really should never have become public companies? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, look again. It, it could be the subject of another long podcast, like when should a company go public? Why? Some companies obviously, you know, never go public and they make a lot of money and they're super profitable and they like it that way because they, you know, they don't have to report on their earnings every quarter and, you know, they don't have to be subject to take over by shareholders that they don't know or, you know. So, and I, you know, some of those bad houses that I talked about will probably be companies that never should have gone public, not because public scrutiny somehow, you know, exposes them. They, they shouldn't go public because they weren't ready to be, you know, traded in the capital markets. But right. you've got a plenty of companies that were, you know, penny stocks are traded out there, you know, by companies that probably, you know, would have been better served by remaining private until they, you know, were, you know, had a more consistent earnings stream and the like. But, you know, again, my view on this is, you know, we, we have, the United States has the best capital markets in the world still by a wide margin. There's no better place to go public as a company, no better place to raise capital. The market kind of sifts out good and bad over time. And so I just, I, I, I don't, again, opportunity to look more at some of these, you know, disclosure opportunities to, you know, to get more out front. But, you know, there are not legions of class actions out there, you know, people invested in SPACs who, you know, found themselves, you know, on the short end of, you know, living in a bad house. So I, I think, you know, we, you know, there's often a tendency to rush to a fire upon examination probably wasn't a fire at all. So I just think this is still, you know, in the market, there's a cooling down of the, of the SPAC effort right now, in part for the dynamic I described, which is that a lot of them are raising money and then they got no house to buy. And so people are sort of like, well, why, why do I want to park my capital with, with her now, you know, there's other opportunities in the market that are better. That's the market is playing itself out the way it should. So you mentioned a moment ago the tools of law enforcement. Let's talk about the biggest bludgeon of law enforcement, and that is criminal indictment. Yeah. Well, I think the three of us would have said five, six, seven years ago that you can't indict a major financial institution because it will kill the institution. But it turns out that the Department of Justice now has actually forced some financial institutions to take a guilty plea. Were we wrong five, six, seven years ago in thinking that a indictment of a bank is, was unthinkable or is there something else at work here? Well, I think that, 
you guys correct me if I'm wrong. I think what we thought was the indictment of the of a bank without a determined outcome was a death sentence for a bank. And I think that is still true. Meaning, I think that if the government were to indict Goldman Stanley without an agreed upon outcome, open that, indictment. an open indictment, you know, the way you would against an individual defendant or a recalcitrant, you know, institution, that would still be the end of a bank. There's no question about it. And look, and the same thing, like, in, you know, an, an indictment of an individual without a predetermined guilty plea, you know, is a different life event for that individual, then, okay, you know, I'm going to go to court now, there's an indictment, I'm going to raise my hand and take guilty, but I know what the outcome is going to be. So it's not any different for an individual than it is for a company. It, it, you know, if you've decided you can live with the punishment, far better to be an individual to go, you know, take the guilty plea than to fight it, you know, unless you feel like the government's wronged you or anything like that. But, you know, liberty and the consequences are pretty severe. So if I can lock in, you know, six months of home detention, I might as well do that versus the potential of five years in the pokey. So the corporate dynamic was always the same. You know, all of the consequences, but the consequences were worse for a bank because of how highly regulated we were, which is are, which is that the indictment without the determined outcome would mean we would necessarily go out of business. Our ability to operate would end. And so the punishment, i.e. going out of business, would be delivered by the indictment. So our operating principle always was you can't indict a bank, i.e. indict them without an outcome. And we know, and and we I think we always thought, and there are all these other mechanisms, deferred prosecution agreement, you know, to deal with how to punish a non-two-legged entity, right? Money, compliance monitor, probate, you know, all you know, you know, all these other ways, you know, springing indictment, you know, with a DPA. So why do you why do you need a criminal plea? What, what is the purpose served by a criminal plea, particularly with the assumption that with a criminal plea, unknown outcome would be a death sentence, a la Arthur Anderson, before you could actually try the case? What the, 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 way to, the only way to solve that problem was to say, we're going to tell you what the outcome is going to be. You're going to go and plead guilty to this crime, but we're going to make sure that the consequences are no different than they would be if you did a deferred prosecution agreement. We're gonna check with every regulator to make sure they won't put you out of business. We're gonna check as, in some cases, with your counterparties to make sure that they will continue to do business with you, which those calls have been made. And so, you know, we're gonna, and we're gonna reassure the market in a statement that says you've pled guilty this, but you've remediated and you're, you know, you, know, you, you cooperated and you were a good corporate citizen and you had some bad actors and the like. And so, and, you know, my, my I, I coined this term, you know, that they sprayed it. It's like, you know, landing a plane that's, you know, with no engines, but you spray enough foam on the runway, you can, you know, hopefully land the plane without, you know, killing anybody. And so they their view was we're going to spray a ton of foam on the runway. We're going to land these criminal pleas because we want to show that we've gotten tougher. We've delivered no sub, nothing substantively different other than the wording in the press release is different. But we've now crossed the Rubicon and we, you know, have yet another tool in our arsenal, which is, you know, we can criminally charge a bank and they will plead guilty as, major, frankly, every other major financial institution but Morgan Stanley has done in the last 10 years. Knock on wood, we have not. So does that mean they've essentially eviscerated the significance of a criminal plea? They've, they've diminished its importance? No, I don't think that because I think that the criminal, in the, the, in, 
they've eviscerated the criminal plea as a dis, I think as a distinguishing as distinguished from a deferred prosecution agreement. They're basically the same thing now. I think what they have not what they have not done, and this is you know my fear, is that the the only thing kind of left in their arsenal now is the criminal indictment without a pre ordained outcome. Without the foam on the rubble. Without runway. the foam on the runway. And, it, 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 and in that case, the plane will blow up and the company will go out of business. The bank will go out of business. You cannot, there's no major financial institution that could survive a criminal, indi- a U.S. criminal indictment, you know, for a felony and remain in business. I think it would be impossibly hard. So this decision to insist on pleas and add the foam to the runway. Do you perceive that as a way of, of prosecutors succumbing to political pressure? And what are your thoughts generally about the intersection of po- politics and law enforcement? Is, is that part of the problem that we're talking about here? I don't know that I – let's start with the – politics 100% influences the behavior of Department of Justice career and non-career political appointee prosecutors. It just does. And frankly, administrations, even though, you know, we all live in this world in which, you know, we think, oh, the DOJ is supposed to be independent and make all these, I mean, this is not the reality. The attorney general is picked by the president and, you know, serves at the president's pleasure. And their agendas have always been political in the sense that they pursue things that they think are consistent with the administration's agenda. For a long period of time after the crisis, pursuit of financial institutions was consistent with the president's agenda. And so it wasn't surprising that the Department of Justice felt like it needed to appear to be tougher on financial institutions. And they were tougher on financial institutions. My quibble has always been not with their being tougher, but that at some point what happens is when they when they cross the line from being administrators of justice, even if they're tougher, to kind of litigants, right? We're you know we're going to bring a case and we're going to ignore the facts that work against our case. Then that's always been my beef on these issues, and that you know in particularly heated political you know times, as you know, even the the even career. Department of Justice and other regulatory officials sometimes lose the plot in terms of what they're supposed to be doing in their job. But having said that, I don't, you know, I don't quibble that much. I think the the I I think that going forward, the real question is, okay, now that there are all these kind of tools in their arsenal, are they consistently applied, and are they reserved for the most egregious fact patterns and cases? And I think, by and large, they have been. Speaking of being tougher on the topic of credit for corporate cooperation, yeah, I heard you say a few years ago that you thought corporate cooperation had basically become table stakes when you're dealing with DOJ, SEC, CFTC, which I took to mean that you didn't think they were getting enough credit for real substantial cooperation. What's your current thinking on whether those agencies are giving sufficient credit for solid cooperation with or without self-reporting, you could throw self-reporting into the mix in the sense that it seems that they believe that, well, that some have said that real and the best cooperation credit will come only when you truly self-report a new issue that they were not aware of before, yeah. which is an issue that I would take issue with. Yes. I know Lee would too. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, I think you have to put, again, I, I seem to be putting everything in two categories. Financial institutions, highly regulated financial institutions sit in one category. And then there's sort of the rest of the, the corporate world are in another category. If you're a highly regu regulated financial institution, you, ha you have no choice but to tell your regulators when something has gone wrong. You just, there's no other decision for management but to tell. And so once you know about it, you tell them. The real question is, when I say once you know about it, it's like, well, the real question is how much time do you have to figure out whether you, you have an it or not? Whether do you have something or not? Can you put a marker down? When do you put the marker down? How much leeway are you given to do the investigation? So if you're a financial institution, that, you know. And so when I t said table stakes for banks, I meant you, you don't have it. These decisions are made for you. Likewise, the, you know, cooperating, which there's all kinds of, as we have talked about, all sorts of different level of, levels of cooperation. The tension point always tends to be around waiver of attorney-client privilege. Uh, but if you just put, and that's, again, we could spend a whole podcast on that, but if you just put that issue to the side, again, for financial institutions, back to my point about outcomes at the end of the day, if the government's press release doesn't say, and the and the bank fully cooperated, well, then, you know, the guys in corporate communications here are like, well, what happened? How did that happen? So, you know, you kind of, remember, we are in the trust business. I mean, we are, that's the business we are in. People give us their money, their good ideas, their life savings, their inheritances. We, we need to be a trustworthy organization. We cooperate with, with law enforcement. And as a cultural matter, bad behavior, people here who, who violate not just laws and regulations, but our own rules, we want them out. So we, our interests are aligned almost always, except in the handful of cases where we disagree about the nature of the conduct. And that does happen from time to time. Those are the hardest situations when we disagree about whether or not someone has done something wrong or not. And that's back to the political question. Sometimes those disagreements about behavior almost always arise in situations where the behavior of the investigator is politically motivated. For the rest of the world, I think the self-disclosure question is a far more complicated one. And having been a practicing defense lawyer for a long time, I felt that it was sort of a injustice, an overstepping of governmental authority to suggest that if you've identified not widespread misconduct, but some misconduct by some employee that didn't evidence systemic cultural breakdown or failure, that you couldn't remediate it uh, yourself, fire the employee, fix whatever the business practice was without running to the government and saying, uh, you know, Aha, go, you know, and I, and I still believe that ought to be the prerogative of some companies. The government has done its best to root that out by saying, yeah, well, if you do that and we find out about it later, it's going to go really badly for you. That's, you know, that's unfortunate. I get it. You know, I get why the folks in government, they, they'd like nothing better than a case brought to them, right? And they sort of feel like if you've engaged in wrongdoing, you individual have engaged in wrongdoing, then you, the only way we're going to know about it is the company tells us, and otherwise that person is never going to really, you know, serve their punishment to society. So I kind of get it. I think it's complicated. I and I just think where that has left us, you as defense lawyers, is it's in. It's got to be. You know, it makes the the job of advising company that much harder, because you could say, look, I think you know, I don't think this is high level. I don't think this is. You know, we got one bad apple. You can solve this bad apple. You can remediate the processes and the like. But you should know that you'll be then watching the clock for the next five years because the government finds out about it. You know, so what do you do? You then hyperanalyze what are the like what's the likelihood the government's going to find out about it, which of course then impacts sometimes how you treat the individual 
and others who know about it. So it's super complicated. And so I think it takes a very, very particular set of facts to decide not to tell the government. Well, and part of the problem that, that you're addressing is that these agencies now have created essentially a black letter rule, which is you cannot get 100% cooperation credit if you didn't self-report. Yeah. And that's even true where you didn't know to self-report, where the government has discovered the problem before you had a chance yeah, to yeah, discover it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I, that, well that's, a, that's an unfairness, I think. Look, but, you know, I mean, also, you know, like, again, it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the, the so-called benefits, for me, I've, I've also found it kind of illusory in terms of what you actually get for being in the really good category, like, versus what you get if you're in the bad category. I mean, if the facts are bad enough and it's political, back to the political, it doesn't matter. You could have discovered it, self-reported it, like, within one iota, thrown everybody involved, you know, to the wolves, remediated, paid everybody who might have been harmed. And if it's political enough, they're still going to punch you in the nose. So, you know, I think, look, that's why you guys are, you know, that's why the, the business is as good as it is. Well, so part I of the problem we, is they don't count. Most companies, if you haven't been through this drill, companies need help in analyzing this. Because while past performance of the government is not always a predictor of future performance, you are much better having been advised by someone who's been through this as many times as you guys have been through this to help a more naive company deal with this the first time they have it. Yeah. So all of you listeners out there, these are two guys, two good guys you want if you if you find yourself. He didn't tell me to say that. But it happens to be true. <laughs> uh, uh, well, thank you for that, Eric. Um, let's shift gears just a tiny bit to something you referred to a moment ago, and that's the privilege. And you're right. We could talk about the privilege for the next several hours. But the one thing I was interested in hearing from you is how how the fact that you're regulated by the Fed which I, I gather does not recognize the privilege, affects the behavior of a financial institution when it's in the midst of a law enforcement investigation. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we, we sort of view the Fed's non-recognition of the attorney-client privilege as a bit of a sideshow, meaning we conduct ourselves the way we would. We conduct ourselves, meaning in, in investigating and analyzing wrongdoing, and interacting with everyone but the Fed as if we were a non-regulated entity, meaning we try and preserve the client privilege, we assert the attorney-client privilege, we view you know, uh, interviews and employees and the like as protected by the attorney-client privilege, we think that joint defense privileges work, we think that all that works. When we're talking to the Fed, then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, it's like we're in another world, like that, you know, they, they can have that, they get that. Now, I have... I have in more complicated fact patterns than sort of the traditional one, I have said, no, you, you know, I've taken the position, no, you don't get it here because the consequence of your getting it here is that we lose it everywhere. And How I've has that gone? Mixed. Mixed. I've, I can't say that I've had no success, but I can't say that I've, <laughs> that I've won all those arguments also. And they largely were the product of some idiosyncratic fact patterns that didn't worry me too much from a precedential standpoint, but it's tough. So, but that's how we operate. You just have to, you know, do your normal thing. And then when the Fed says we would like it, we then analyze the, the facts and circumstances of why they're asking and what will happen as a consequence of their asking. And if we think as a consequence of their asking, that then creates some broader risk that we lose what we are lawfully allowed to have, 
which is the protection of the attorney-client privilege, like every other entity and individual in this country, then that's when I get my back up a little bit. So we talked about political pressure. Not too many years ago, the Yates memo, one might have argued, was the result of political pressure coming out of the financial crisis. And in it, as... Who took the other side of that argument? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the question, the question I have for you is, just reminding our listeners that the Yates memo was a memo in which the, the deputy attorney general declared that there would be an obligation on the part of corporations who are being investigated. The, to, the later famous Sally Yates. Yes, <laughs> to to hand over all information relevant to the possible prosecution of its executives, and then there was outrage. I think all employees, not just executives. Yeah, not right? just not just executives. There was outrage. Uh, in the financial crisis that coming out of it, none of the big banks had their executives indicted the way many were clamoring yeah. to have happen. Yeah. Um, have you seen any meaningful change in the way the department's behaving uh, since the Yates memo and given political pressure to look at individuals as opposed to corporations? Nope. The underlying premise that led in part to the clamor that led to the Yates memo was the notion that somehow the banks were agreeing to these outrageously high economic settlements in order to protect their executives, who, but for these corporate pleas and these huge amounts, would themselves have been charged. But that premise was false. The government tried extraordinarily hard to bring charges against individuals, but happily, the government didn't bring charges against individuals where they did not believe that a crime had been committed. The dynamic with respect to entities was different. And we all know the pressure that they can bring to bear, which is what we spent a bunch of time talking about, against entities on the same evidence is different because the consequences of, of a corporate plea were different. And so corporate behavior was not, bank behavior was not motivated by protecting individuals. It was as we described it, sort of, you know, an acquisition of peace with the U.S. government, like, so that we could kind of move on. It was the last kind of repayment of the the TARP uh, money and interest and profit that we paid the government back after they loaned Morgan Stanley and all the other financial institutions money. So, but the government couldn't say that. So the government was kind of hamstrung in terms of its ability to defend its 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 conduct in extracting these huge settlement amounts from the banks. So the government's response was, well, we're going to change our policy in the form of a memo that actually didn't really change their policy at all. They're, they're, of course, they continue to go at individuals. Companies always was, were obligated to provide. Well, we, got, we get subpoenas like everybody else. We have to comply with those. We had it to get back to, the, to link it to the cooperation point to be deemed a cooperator. We had to make our employees available. And we always have. It's in our code of conduct to testify before and, and meet with all governmental investigative investigatory authorities. If a Morgan Stanley employee refuses to meet with a investigator from a law from a law enforcement or regulator, they're fired almost immediately. So the, it was the whole thing was kind of a bit of a like as I said, it was a, it was to sort of it was to respond to something because the real response was not palatable. So as a consequence of that, there was a lot of show immediately on the back of that uh, uh, with respect to the banks that had settled to kind of replow 
the evidence with respect to individuals, all of which have been plowed before, and of course it amounted to nothing. Eric, at the top of the podcast, you mentioned your great compliance and AML function within the legal and compliance department. Yeah. Financial institutions like Morgan Stanley are unusual in our, in our system in that they are not only essentially required to cooperate in the way that you've described today, but they're also essentially re- they're required to maintain the AML and anti-sanction and anti-other financial crime compliance programs that will basically catch crimes by their clients. Yeah. Under pain of criminal prosecution, if you fail to do so or, or maintain a good enough program to catch your clients. Um, there's no comparable requirement in any other industry that, that I'm aware of. What would you say, and this sort of gets to the, the somewhat of the point we're describing about political pressure, what would you say to politicians and to the general public that may not be aware of the time and expense that the great people in your legal and compliance department spend on these issues dedicated to anti-money laundering, sanctions compliance, combating the fin- financing of terrorism, et cetera? Well, look, I think, I think, you know, it's an inefficient system. It's, it's value to society is clear, uh, preventing the, the flows of illegal funds, terrorist-related funds, and the like through the major financial institutions of the world is a noble governmental pursuit. And I'd not say we happily do it. We, we happily do it, we, we, but we are frustrated by the lack of efficiency in the way the regime has been constructed the, the, because, as you know, the, re, the regime would benefit enormously if, you, if one could see the whole picture of a particular bad person's behavior. But we only see our slice, Citigroup sees its slice, and, sees, and so, you know, and the, and the government is meant to be the collator of all that, but I just, they're, they're overwhelmed, right? So if we were allowed to kind of work together, I think the outcomes would be better. I think the second part of your question, and so I, I, I wish there's always been, there's for years and years and years, there's been talk about a better mousetrap, but it's sort of like, well, you know, in the, the words of Charles Oakley, if, you know, if it ain't broke, don't break it. <laughs> so I think a giant societal loophole is that there are all these other places now where bad things can happen. And there's, there's, there, there, there's not even, to say there's no regimes that are comparable, there are no regime. And as more and more businesses get into the payments business and the flow of money, and there's a lot of interest in lots of places in getting into money flow businesses, the absence of regulation mean the bad guys will know exactly where to go. They will know exactly where to go because they won't come here because your chance of getting, you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like if you're a terrorist, you know, people always describe New York, it's a hard target now, right? Because there's, you know, there's, you know, there's cameras all over the place that we don't know about and detectors and cops that you don't see and all this kind of other stuff, you know? So if, you know, if you were going to blow something up, you, you know, New York would probably be further down your list. If you're going to be a money launderer, you wouldn't go to Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or, or Citibank. You'd go to one of these new places to move money around. That's exactly what's happening right now as we speak. I'd like to shift gears dramatically and talk about something that I know you you care deeply about. You are one of the authors of an open letter to the legal community that was signed by a number of big bank uh, general counsels about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, I know this is something that's uh, near and dear to your heart, as it is, by the way, to uh, our partners at Perkins Coie. I wonder what, what you could tell us about what you're doing internally at the bank here with respect to 
recent initiatives on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and how you're relating on that issue to your outside law firms. Yeah. Well, again, this is a topic we could spend on and have. So I have, I think I did a whole podcast devoted to this topic. We, Morgan Stanley, we, the legal and compliance division at Morgan Stanley, I think have made enormous strides in the years that I've been here in creating a more diverse, more inclusive workplace. But I think it's equally fair to say we are not diverse enough and we still have work to ensure that everyone feels a sense of belonging and inclusiveness in when they come to the office or when they work remotely or any way they work. And there's no, as you know, because I know you've been at this a long time too, there's no magic bullet to solve these problems societally or individually at entities or organizations. But one thing that is clear is that talented, diverse individuals need to be hired, supported, mentored, trained, and given opportunities for advancement and feedback. And that work needs to be done with a deliberate and focused effort uh, with clear goals and commitments and objectives. And so we in the legal compliance of it have objectives in terms of numbers that we intend to meet. That's true across all of Morgan Stanley in terms of actually just changing the numbers, both uh, numbers of, of just employed individuals, but also in positions of leadership across the organization. And, and that, of course, requires a cascading of frankly, all of the work that we've done here now on kind of steroids, like to make sure that we keep, retain, develop our most talented folks, you know, who are, you know, who, who are diverse. So that's what we're doing. And then, and, and of course, then just to answer the second part is, and my hope is that that same exact thing is happening at law firms because law firms have done a tremendous amount over the years to be more diverse and more inclusive, but they also have, I mean, the law, the legal community writ large has a long way to go. And ultimately, there's circularity to it. There needs to be more diversity and more people of color in leadership positions across the industry to attract more young, uh, younger people to the industry as a place where they can have successful careers. And so, you know, we've, we, well, this is, you know, the one thing we cannot allow to have happen is all the great energy around this topic uh, of the last year cannot be lost just because, you know, now we're focused on return to the office or, you know, whatever the next shiny object is. This is, and I'm, in, and I'm encouraged that the, that the enthusiasm, uh, you know, kind of writ large on this issue has not abated since, uh, you know, the tragic events that sparked a, a, an even further focusing on this issue. Well, Eric, it's always a great pleasure to spend time with you and hear, hear your many interesting thoughts. <laughs> and uh, David and I had the chance to spend a lot of time today, and that was a, that was a really special experience. In the office. In yeah. the office. In, a, in Morgan in Stanley's offices, room. but in the offices. Indeed, the other, so, yeah. which, which also is a great pleasure. Yes. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, for thank you both. But it's been, been, as you know, a great honor to have worked with you guys over the years as long as we have. And for you to ask me to do this was a great pleasure. So thank you guys. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.